Hello and welcome to Theology Matters. This is Dr. John Clark. And today we want to continue our study on an objectionable passage in the book of 1 John as it relates to eternal security. And we've been using the definition of eternal security from our friends at Duluth Bible Church, uh, which reads, eternal security means that one who, who has been genuinely saved by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone shall never be in danger of God's condemnation or loss of his salvation, but are kept forever saved and secure by God's grace and power. And as we've made the distinction before, eternal security uh, is a little bit different than assurance of salvation. Eternal security is uh, God's viewpoint of the certainty of a person's salvation. And, you know, God knows the moment that somebody transfers their faith or trust from something else and puts it squarely on Jesus Christ and his finished work for them. And at that moment, the Bible makes incredible promises. Uh, God himself makes incredible promises that whosoever believes in Jesus uh, shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that's where we believe that security comes in, that once a person is saved, uh, he's always saved. And it's based on the finished work of Christ and on the promises of God, which are based on the, his evaluation of the finished work of Christ. When Christ said uh, it is finished, that he had paid it in full, uh, God the Father said amen, so to speak, by raising him from the dead. And, and he takes Jesus's work as a full payment for anyone who will simply trust in Jesus Christ. And so that's eternal security. Now, assurance of salvation is man's viewpoint of their certainty of salvation. And oftentimes people's assurance fluctuates based on the type of life they're living, if they sin, if they're committing big sins, if they have a habitual sin. And and what ends up happening is if people are looking toward their own lifestyle for assurance, very rarely will someone find assurance, especially those who are um, evaluating themselves honestly. Um, and so what we want to do is, is hopefully through this study is take people's mindset toward salvation and adjust their thinking to match the word of God, to take God's viewpoint on what he says about somebody and their salvation, how they get saved, but not only how they get saved, but also how they remain saved. And so one of the passages uh, or one of the objectionable passages that come up often is is really in the book of First John. And part of that, as we've reviewed is because people, uh, many many well-meaning Bible teachers, just have a uh, uh, they describe First John in a different. Uh, they have a different approach to th- to First John. In fact, many lordship teachers and and Calvinistic teachers view the book um, specifically as a book that that basically gives um, nine to eleven uh, different tests of salvation, and so. Uh, a, a person who is curious as to whether or not they, they're saved from this perspective, they say, hey, read First John and see if you pass all these tests. And if you do, then you can know that you have eternal life. The problem with that is, is if you know it, if you pass all the tests today and you know that you have eternal life, what if you failed one of the tests tomorrow? Do you, can you still know that you have eternal life? And uh, And you can see why, based on those standards, nobody could know that they have eternal life. And that's actually one of the clearly stated uh, verses in the entire book in First John five thirteen. These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And eternal life, by definition, is life that lasts forever. And so, what we believe is the the theme. A couple themes of the book of First John is is John wrote to 
warn his readers of false teaching and false teachers. And he also wrote to encourage believers to walk with the Lord and to enjoy abundant life. And so that kind of brings us to the passage that we want to consider in the next two sessions. And that is found in 1 John chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 4. And so 1 John 3, uh, starting in verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And so verse 4, you see that phrase, whoever commits sin, uh, sin is lawlessness, and, and sin, regardless of who does it, is lawlessness. That's, that's true of an, a believer or an unbeliever. Um, and lawlessness means not only not the absence of law, but the violation of law. So there's a, there's a, uh, a possession or a, a, a clear standard that's broken. And, he's, and, and John here is, is saying in verse 4, whoever commits sin commits lawlessness or, or breaks the law, violates the law. And that's just true of, of believer or unbeliever. Um, and, and in verse five, we say, and you know that, that he, Jesus Christ was manifested to take away our sins and in him, there is no sin. And so this gives us uh, a reminder of how serious our sins were and are to God. Jesus had to give his life in order to clean up the mess we made in terms of sin's penalty. And remember, sin's penalty uh, is clearly defined in Romans 6.23 as the wages of sin is death. And it's death in all of its aspects. And so for us to continue in our sins after being saved is completely inconsistent with his purpose in coming. And we see that in him there is no sin. Additionally, John reminds the believer that in Christ there is no sin. In fact, John uses the Greek negation ooh here to, to express a direct and full negation. And it's independent, absolute, and objective negation. In other words, <clears throat> there, there is def, definitely, without any doubt, no sin in Jesus Christ. Now, apart from the double negation in the Greek, which is uh, takes this word ooh and, and adds may, which is another negation, uh, apart from that, this is actually the strongest way to say there is absolutely no sin found in Jesus. And so um, this is kind of, if you will, the motivation. He's, he's set the stage now uh, for what he's about to say in the next verse because he comes back now to a fellowship concept. In other words, how can you know that you're in fellowship uh, with the Lord? How can you know that you're walking with the Lord? And so we see in verse 6, it says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, unfortunately, I have to criticize the NIV here because it has a terrible uh, interpretive translation here for verse six. You know, the the translators of all of the Bible versions, their their heart, desire, and goal was to translate the Bible from the original language in, into the English. Um, but for he, uh, but in this particular verse, you can see more of an interpretive translation rather than an accurate translation of the wording. Uh, in the NIV, they say this, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. 
No one who continues to sin either has seen him or known him. And, and again, other indicators in the context must be present before we conclude that present tense means continuous action. That's how the NIV translators took this. And that's how those who teach that you can lose your salvation or prove that you never had it. This is how they would take verse six too. Uh, they they focus on whoever abides in him does not keep on sinning. They, they focus on a continual aspect of sin or habitual sin. And then they said, whoever continues in sin or continues to sin uh, has neither seen him or known him. In other words, they would say, whoever uh, you know lives habitually in sin has never been saved. That's that's kind of the way they would take that. But um, you know, just the present tense does not indicate continuous action. We've got to look at the context. And so let's let's look at that. When we talk about whoever abides in him, whoever abides is what's called an articulated substantival participle, meaning the one who abides or the abiding one. It's more of an adjectival force than an ad, uh, adverbial force, uh, emphasizing uh, who the person is, not the action that they're doing. Okay. And so when we talk about abiding, uh, the word simply means to remain or to stay. And this is drawn directly, obviously, from Jesus's teaching in John 15. And we know that abiding from that passage is key to bearing acceptable fruit to the Lord. And so the word of uh, abide or abiding the concept is a synonym for the following in scripture. It's a synonym for being in fellowship with the Lord. It's a synonym for walking by means of the spirit. It's a a synonym for walking in the fear of the Lord. Okay. This is just another synonymous way of saying that we're in fellowship with the Lord. So whoever, uh, the one who abides or the abiding one does not sin. And when we look at does not sin, it is a present tense verb indicating present tense action. And what this means is this, that when a believer is abiding in Christ in that moment, they do not sin. Now, this should logically make sense. If I am abiding in Christ, then I cannot be sinning at the same time. And and hence then the emphasis is very similar to what Paul wrote in Galatians 5.16. If you remember Galatians 5.16, it reads this. I say then, Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So you don't, you don't, um, you don't stop sinning in order to abide. You abide in order to stop sinning. You walk by means of the spirit to never, no, not ever fulfill the lust of the flesh. You don't stop fulfilling the lust of the flesh in order to walk in the spirit. It's, it's, that's a backwards emphasis, the command in Galatians 5.16 is to walk in the spirit. And so the same concept is communicated here. Now, some would erroneously teach here um, that if that if a person is really saved, i.e. the meaning of abide, then they would not habitually sin. And, and they take the present tense and they emphasize the continual aspect of the verb. And so for this view to be right, though, they have to say that if someone abides in Christ, if they're truly saved, that they then they can sin, but just not a lot. That's that's what they'd have to say. Well, they, they can sin because most of these people who teach this erroneous view say, oh, yeah, well, I sin. I make mistakes, but I don't do it a lot or I don't do it continuously. And is that what this is teaching? Well, let's continue to look in verse six. 
It says, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Again, whoever sins is the same structure as before. It's an articulated, substantival participle, meaning the one who sins or the sinful one. And so either a believer is abiding or they're not. Either the believer is walking by means of the spirit or they are walking according to the flesh. There is no middle ground. And so they're either abiding they're either the abiding one or they're the sinful one. And, and, and the outcome of this is that he says, has neither seen him nor known him. And seeing him means to perceive with the eyes, not just emphasizing the act of seeing, but also the, the actual perception of the object. And then known him means to come to know. Again, it's gained knowledge. And so whatever John means here, um, it, it, through the grammatical structure that he uses with these two articulated substantival participles, verse, uh, verse six, again, let me just remind us, whoever abides, that's one. And then, uh, whoever sins, he's contrasting those two. He's giving the alternative, uh, to abiding here. So either the believer is abiding or they're not abiding. They're either walking by means of the spirit or they're walking according to the flesh. And what he simply says is this, is that when the, when the believer is, um, is sinning or, or whoever sins, the, the sinful one, the one who's not abiding, so to speak, the believer that's not abiding, um, it, it basically saying you're, you're walking according to flesh. You're not living with understanding of Jesus, who the, who you are in him and the resources available to him and the danger and consequences of living in sin, which is you're out of fellowship with the Lord. And so they're, they're living out of fellowship with the Lord. They're unable to please him in that moment. It, it shows that they're not growing in the term of, of knowing him or seeing him with perception. They're, they're not rightly related to the Lord. And, and thus, they're unable to please the Lord in that moment. See, both of these verbs describe intimate fellowship, where at some point in the past, their fellowship was disrupted through sin and the results are continuing in the present. And so we'll pick up there next time. 